Hi, welcome back. We are in Hebrews again, part 17. Disciplined for the dangers. Let's do it. A study through Hebrews part 17. There will be 20, Lord willing. Um, it's really actually quite wonderful. I'll be able to finish this book um, on the last Sunday of the month and then turn over the majority of the, that responsibility to Paul. Uh, So the Lord spoke to me this week about gratefulness. Or should I just say he made my heart glad and put gratefulness in me. I want you to know that as I get ready to open the word here, that the honor and privilege of opening God's holy word to this congregation for 21 years. I'm so glad that the Lord has given me this. And I'm so um, completely um, unclear about the future and completely clear about who we are in Christ and about his plans for us, and about his good hand upon us, and about the fact that the Lord has blessed us and been good to us in all these years. He's always kept us and helped us. And we've gone through big transitions, and the Lord has been there. And it's time for a new, fresh transition for you. God's got plans for you. He's gonna do great things for you. You're gonna see a harvest. You're gonna see a blessing you're gonna see a wonderful outpouring. Now, let's do this Hebrews thing. Let's, let's get her done. I wanna to talk to you about being disciplined for the dangers. The book of Hebrews is a book, it's actually a book of warning. And there are a lot of warnings in it and we kind of have a bit of a warning in the text tonight. Uh, but more we have a kind of an explanation of where they are and a, and a giving of some understanding to them. And I'm gonna tell you, I'm always, I'm always pleased when I come to the word. And the old Puritan was right when he said, the Lord hath yet more light and truth to break forth from his holy word. And I come to the word afresh and I open it. And I tell you, it seems as if, as I'm looking at it, I've never seen it before. It seems like I'm seeing it for the first time. This was our text last week, and you know how I like to, it's like I, I, I like to layer it. So here we are. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, that is the witnesses from the faith chapter, let us also lay aside every weight and the sin, the sin of unbelief that clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, 
who for the joy that was set before him. Hallelujah. Endured the cross, despising the shame and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Why don't you ask the Lord to open your eyes to see that? Accept that. When you see this revelation of Jesus given, it's often given in the face of intense suffering. So we're gonna talk about some suffering tonight. And in fact, you think about the martyrdom of Stephen and he is given the great vision of the open heavens and to see Christ who was seated, standing at the right hand of God, to see the one that he was preaching, to see the one who is the true king in the true temple, uh, the one who poured forth his Holy Spirit on all flesh, and to see him. I want you to see him tonight. And so I want to take you back to say, what, what will you see when you see Jesus? What will you see? Because it says, he endured the cross, despising the shame. Again, uh, the early part of the book of Hebrews, but we who see him, uh, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor. Because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. It was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. And this is why he's not ashamed to call them brothers. Now I'm setting you up here. Because it's at this place in the, in the book of Hebrews where he says, don't forget Abel, Noah, Abraham. Don't forget David. Don't forget the prophets. Remember them. Hear their testimony. Listen to them. And then he comes and says, however, let's look to Jesus, the one who is the the author, and it says, and the perfecter. I did a lot on that word last week. I'm going to do a little bit more today, but in just a minute. Um, and I hearkened you back to this text last week. The great mystery of the death of Christ. I have students and they're trying to study it and they're trying to come to some understanding. How did the death of Jesus save us? And the common answer that Christians have given forever is that he 
is that he, is, is that he bore punishment. That's not the most common answer given in the scripture. The most common answer in the scripture is that he defeated our enemy. And if you remember, the manifestation in the Bible that the enemy is great is death because death seems to be the incontrovertible, undefeated enemy of humanity. And Jesus goes right into death and defeats death. Now look, it says in this passage, it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. All right, we see Jesus crowned with glory and honor. And then it says, he's got to bring many sons to glory. While you get a hold of it, one of the things he's specifically going to say to these Hebrew believers is that their suffering is in the bargain. And that, it, and that God's actually in it. And it's with, it's with that claim that I want you to come to the Lord's table and prepare yourselves to receive it. Um. I want you to find out how big God is. Listen, it's not lost on me that I'm, I'm in this last month of ministry and preaching. And you guys don't know this, but sometimes we've gone through years as a church and not had as many deaths as we've had in this month or in this last 30, 40 days. And I include Papa Jack when I say that because he's our father in this house. I bring you greetings, by the way, from Mama Frida. We talked to her today and she's looking forward to being with us in the first week. But it seems that God is, um, do you believe God's in control? Yeah. So he's put us, so he's in, so in his providence of his care, he has filled our lives with death just now. Can I say that without offending you? He's called on us to face it and to proclaim his love through it and to not be defeated by it and to proclaim his victory over it. And our Lord showed us the way. He who the Bible says endured the cross for the joy that was set before him and despised the shame. If you've been with me for many years, you've heard me talk about the pain and the shame of the cross. The pain of the cross he endured, and tonight is a lot about endurance. The shame of the cross, it says he despised. Hmm. What does that mean? He didn't give in to it. You know what shame does to you? It breaks you down like nothing else. It breaks us. Shame makes us weak. 
I have often said that it was the intentional plan of the enemy to bring so much shame to bear on Jesus's name that no one would want to be associated with him. For the Jew, death on the cross meant that man was cursed by God. For the, for the Gentile, death on the cross in the Roman world meant you were the most... Uh, you were the lowest form of humanity. If you were Roman, only a traitor could be crucified. You were too dignified to die that kind of death. You were stripped bare and hanged on a cross. The very definition of exposing your shame in the ancient world and in the Hebrew world. And Jesus went right there. He just went right there. Um, we should all remember the, the moment of God forsakenness. And, and let me tell you what death does. Death is the test that we taste that makes us ask, has God forsaken us? And literally, if you want to follow Jesus, you have to go into the God-forsaken moment. You understand, if you don't have any faith in him, you can, you can, just, you can just curse life if you want to. But if you have faith in him, it's death that makes people say, I believed until so-and-so died, and I'm always confused by that. And I understand it. So our Jesus is associated with death and he gives us a meal that is associated with death, the Lord's Supper, where he calls us to eat his flesh and drink his blood, or if you will, to receive him in the way humans receive. We are to take his body and to take his blood and be nourished. We are to be nourished by his death. We are to draw life from his death. And so we come to the table again. It's a very big passion of mine that this should not be a routine for us, but that we should consider it. It's also kind of a passion of mine that I should say it in such ways that it almost offends you because Jesus did that. And so... Jesus said, this is my body. And I declare to you, the body of Christ is given for you. Receive him. Then Jesus took the cup. And when he had given thanks, he said, this is the new covenant which is shed in my blood, which is shed for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This is the blood of Christ, the blood of the covenant.
all that by way of introduction to bring us to this place. I want you to become ferocious exegetes of Jesus to the world. Able to make him known in every moment. I want to make Jesus known in the face of death, in the moment of death, in the pain of death, in the agony of death, in the God-forsakenness of death. I wanna make Jesus known because when somebody knows him, they can do all things, they can endure all things, they can overcome all things. The telos of Jesus required suffering. What was the telos? His perfecting. It's right there. In bringing many sons to glory that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Again, that idea always bothers us. No, it means he brought Jesus to the fulfillment of his purpose through suffering. And that's, that word is telos. It's the reason he existed. He came to the fullness of the reason he existed. How many of you want to come to the fullness of why you're here, why you exist, why you are in the world? Because men, if there's anything that has happened to me is that I've been able to see a little bit more clearly that life's value is its brevity. And to see people that you love, they're gone. And you go, that was it. So we want to make Jesus known. And it's, very, it's for this very reason that I'm telling you, now he's writing to some people who were suffering. And they were wondering to what end were they suffering? Why? And I remembered this text in Acts chapter two, men of Israel, very first Christian sermon, the very first Christian sermon in the Bible. You understand that, right? You say, well, Jesus preached. The very first sermon that was preached that when, when our faith was established on this earth and they said, what is going on here? Men of Israel, hear the words of Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. I know you wanna stop and ask a lot of questions about that, but the, the scriptures are very clear about the full humanity of Jesus and his full deity. This Jesus, uh, what God did through him, as you yourselves know, this Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the wicked hands of men. Now get it, get it, get it, because this is the key to the whole message I'm gonna give you, which is to say, the very first Christian sermon, we were told that the wicked hands of men and the definite will of God were performed in the same act. Or as Papa Jack would say if he was here, big God, 
big God. Always Christians have believed in the sovereignty of God. This is why. Because the worst thing that man can do becomes the best thing that God can do. Because mankind, when he has devised his worst, is not able, is, listen, actually accomplishes what God wants done at his best. And other, so, so he's preaching this, and God raised him up. So you, you understand the preacher is standing there indicting the people he's preaching to <laughs> while saying that God did it, they didn't do it. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. All right, now why have you done all this, Alan? I'm glad you asked. Because I want you to see this. I want you to see the two things working together. Deliberate plan and foreknowledge of God. Hey, this didn't leave anything uncovered. You say, well, God knew. No, planned it. And the wicked hands of men. This idea is foretold to us in Genesis 20, 50 when Joseph is receiving his brothers. And you remember this moment when his brothers are in fear that he's gonna finally exact his revenge from them. He said, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good. In other words, the wicked hands of my brothers were trying to destroy me and God was in it. And I'm saying this to you for you tonight because I want you to get hold of the providence of God in your life. I want you to get hold of the providence of God in our church. I want you to get hold of the providence of God in the terrible God-forsaken moment that you're in because I want you to taste and see the goodness of God. And so remember, he's writing to a group of people who are considering turning back. So he says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself that you won't grow weary and faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood. Now I'll tell you again, because always, and this has helped me so much to, to be able to, to help you on this, this is not their struggle against their bad habits. This is their struggle against their unbelief. The sin is the sin of apostasy, of turning away from God. And he says to them, yeah, you've been in a bad time, but you're still living. <laughs> and the one you're following was killed. And it was God's plan, and it may be his plan for you is what's behind it. But he's telling them, pay attention to the story, lest you leave the plot to your peril. And then what he says surprises us. For you have, and, and have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, he quotes from the Proverbs, nor be weary when reproved by him, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastens every son he receives. <laughs> now, I don't know about you, but I still, when I still read this thing, I want to go, 
Why does he start talking about this subject? It's like, we always think he changes the subject. Why? Because preachers, when they preach this stuff, they always change the subject. This is not a different subject. This is the writer of Hebrews saying to them that the sufferings they are going through, suffering the plundering of their property, suffering physically, the sufferings that they are going through is actually the chastening of the Lord. And so, it's been very strange on this week of my gratefulness as I've contemplated the hell of my depression in my brain and been able to say, the Lord's doing this. Oh, I, listen, it is the charismatic renewal. We're going to try to dance little dances around it. Stop dancing around it. Go into it. Face it. Face the mystery of the glory of God and of the fact that you cannot fathom him. You cannot fathom how God in the suffering that you had, that he's at work for your good in the midst of your pain. Listen, he's not even messing around. He's saying, I don't want you to just say he's at work in it. I want you to say it's from him. And this might explain why we've lost the plot in parenting. Because we've forgotten how to make our kids miserable for their own good. I remember when it started being the mantra of parenting. I don't, I don't want my kids to have it as hard as I did. Yes, you do. Yes, you do. Because that's the only way your ceiling can be their floor. Because they've, they've got new devils for new levels, as we like to say. And they're gonna have to do their own suffering. And here's the deal. You can't stop it from happening anyway. So don't miss this. Look at this text. Take it straightly as it is. He says to them, consider Jesus, what? That by the wicked hands of men and the will of God, he suffered for our salvation. And now it's your turn. Hallelujah. I'm glad there's still depression in the Bible. Otherwise, I would be running some smack on myself for sure. A word about sons and two sons. This is real quick and this is a sideline. Um, anyone who's in Christ is a son. Females and males are sons. You know this, right? We know this in this house. But I want you to figure something else out. I want you to know something. The deconstruction of gender as it's historically revealed to us in the holy text has been the foundation upon which the deconstruction of our whole culture is built. It started with the simple rejection of us feeling like we had to say sons and daughters so people would feel included rather than saying God in his, uh, in his majesty has placed us together in such a way that when the sons get blessed, the daughters are in it, even as the same way as we're in the bride. So 
Anyway, that's, that's an aside because that's not what the sermon's about. But a son is one who becomes like the son in all things, the object of the father's love. The son suffered, the son must, must do likewise and endure. So get this, life is endurance. Or as my friend Steve Brown says, he says he thinks every time a pagan gets cancer, a Christian gets cancer, so the world can see the frame. See the picture in the frame. I wanna tell you something, charismatic Christians. Learn how to face death. The end of my pastoral time with you, don't always be, don't always be crying out for healing. Learn how to face death, you're going to die. And I don't want to face death as one who's crying out at the moment that I'm giving my last breath in agony because God didn't answer my prayers. I want to be one who goes out declaring the glory of God in the land of the living when he comes for me. You say, how do you balance that out? You want me to tell you? When I know that everybody goes and sees people and all they're doing is praying for them to be healed, I go and say, I'm gonna pray for you to be healed, but it's gonna be real short and I'm just gonna to talk to you. I'll promise you if I'm laying on my deathbed and all of y'all come in and everybody thinks they come in, they think they have to be the one to get me off my deathbed, I'm gonna be mad at you. I'm gonna say, put me in the presence of Jesus. He knows what to do. Can we talk? He commits charismatic blasphemy at the end of his ministry. You know what? You're gonna, half of you are sitting there going, I've always thought that. We won't stop praying for healing. We won't stop praying for healing even in the last hour, but... It's not the point. We are not here not to die. We're here to die well because we lived well. And healing is so we can live well a little longer, but we're going to still die. Hallelujah. I'm old enough now to say, if I die, don't you call me back. Right? <laughs> I love you, wife. I didn't plan that, it just came out. Hebrews 12, seven. Do, I mean, do you see that the Bible's not desperate for us to, do, do you see how the Bible talks? It's desperate for us to live really well to live in Christ, die in Christ, overcome in Christ, suffer in Christ. Declare the mysteries of God all the time. That, that's where it's at. It is for discipline the, that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. Wait just a second. I mean, still, you need to understand. What? Their property's being plundered. They're being shamed. They're being mistreated. They're being persecuted. And he's saying, God's in it. 
I want you to live in the, you say, well, I don't know how to explain that. Well, stop trying to explain it. Live it. Live it. This is the beauty of Jesus Christ in the mystery of the questions that we can't answer. His presence and his glory is there to take us through what we can't answer so that what we do while we're in this life becomes the answer for those who have the question. So people will ask me, they're gonna ask me, they're gonna want me to say, tell to us about this precious girl and her death. No, I'm gonna talk to you about what her life means and what God is up to in the fact that this is, for some of you, a point of turning. If you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're an illegitimate children and not sons. Let me explain that to you more in just plain language. If you can live a life ignoring God and ignoring his call on your life of discipleship and not have any discipline in your life, then you're probably not a child of God. I'll say it another way. If you can be happy in your sin, you're not a child of God. Spurgeon used to preach on the security of a believer and, and people said, if I believed like you believe about security of a believer, I would take my fill of sin. And Spurgeon would say, how much sin does it take to fill you? <laughs> In other words, he's, he, listen, here's what he's saying. You should be more concerned if you were doing well and had no changes and no questions. Um, my theological mentor is a guy named P.T. Forsyth and he wrote theologically during the First World War. And when he wrote his book about explaining a world war at a time when people believed the world was getting better and human progress was everywhere and that there was every reason to be for optimism about the brotherhood of man and the fatherhood of God and the world was becoming a better place, he he wrote and he said there are many unschooled thinkers who think that a world war is enough to unsettle us as to a belief in God. And he said, no, I think it's the other way around. If a world such as we have could get along without a great catastrophe, then we should be wonder whether there's a God. And so... God works in the world in what he would go on to call saving judgments. Or as this one says, if you are left without discipline in which all have participated, then you're illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them, shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? I'm aware of the time. I'm unperturbed. A brief segue on discipline. Because you are parents, 
I've been teaching this for years and I thought this is a good time to call it up. So when it comes to training children, this is, this is, this is like the little box at the bottom of the page. Oh, this is an excursus on training children. Number one, voice train your children because God intends for his children to be voice trained. My sheep hear my voice and they follow me. Voice train your children. And the, and the evidence is this. Pay attention to the home. Whose voice rules the home? Because someone's voice is going to be obeyed in a house. It'll either be the voice of the children or the parents. You show me a house where the children's voice is the one that's obeyed, and I'll show you a house of catastrophe. A parent-centered home, which is the twin to that one. A child-centered home yields self-centered results. Parent-centered home. We live in a very child-centered world. Reverse it. Have a parent-centered home. In other words, the key relationship in the family is, is husband and wife, father and mother. Children is the secondary relationship of the home. Children are... Um, let, let me just give you one little caveat that'll make it easier. Until a child is two years old, they get your undivided attention because they can't help themselves as they need to. By the time a child is two years old, it's time for a shift to be taking place and for them to be listening to your voice way more than you listen to their voice. If your child reaches four years old and that shift doesn't take place, then the kids in the neighborhood will do it for you. And the child will grow up and say, nobody likes me, I don't have any friends. And it will be because you didn't teach them to obey your voice. And then um, making life easy makes it impossible. Last week we had our wonderful friend Alice and I couldn't help but reflect on how she raised three sons as a single mom. She did it by um, forced labor. <laughs> and her sons have grown into fine men. It is the undisciplined child that is unloved. It is the undisciplined child that grows up with an orphan spirit. It is the undisciplined child that feels itself Unwanted, unloved, unneeded. Okay, I can do a seminar on each one of those things, but you can't bear it tonight. And I'll probably never do it. Finish this. For they disciplined us for a short while, a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but it later yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. Therefore, lift up your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed." The writer of Hebrews is calling them to get a mindset 
that sees how big God is, that trusts him, that goes through what they must go through. And he's already told them that some of them wouldn't come through whole. Last slide. Strive for peace with everyone. And holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God. And that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble. And by it many become defiled. The key to that passage is in the book of Deuteronomy. You could look that up. I, I actually do have another slide with it. You can find it in chapter 29. It'll do you a lot of good to look that up and to find out how the New Testament writers use the Old Testament a little bit more clearly. See that no one is sexually immoral. For the most part, we are in a season where the Christian church has been bullied into forsaking sexual morality. This is to the peril of culture. This is to the peril of our work in the world as the people of God. This, is, this costs us a great deal more than we can imagine. That no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau who sold his birthright for a single meal. The Bible there is comparing sexual immorality to Esau who said, I don't want my inheritance. I want my appetite satisfied. For you know that afterward when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected. And he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Here's what that simply says. Esau, and you can study about Esau and Jacob. What is it, 26 and 7 Genesis, I think. And it's very interesting because Jacob is not that savory a character, but this passage wants us to pay attention to Esau, who was even less desirable because Esau didn't value the beautiful things and the good things and the highest things. He valued the lowest things and the immediate things. And then it tells us what we all know. Then he came to himself and he tried to get it back and he couldn't. Now listen, the writer of Hebrews, and, and listen, I want you to understand, the writer of Hebrews this is not where he comes and starts dealing with sins. The writer of Hebrews actually believes that these outcomes are the result of them forsaking their faith. That if they stay, hold on with their faith, they're not gonna get these outcomes. But he comes to this place where he's warning them about these outcomes. Because listen, at the end of every apostolic epistle, there's a moral call. Sometimes it's half the letter. 
in the book of Hebrews, it's really only a little tiny portion of the letter. And then he's going to go back into theology because he's like me. That's his obsession. But he's warning us about Esau because he's told them already that, that if they rejected Christ, who was their birthright, that they would come to a place when they wouldn't be able to come back. That's what he's telling them. He's warned them about this in chapter six. He's warned them about this in chapter 10. He's warning them about this when he used an Esau. That you can come to a place where it's, you can't turn around. I know that I live in a world where people go, oh no, that could never happen. I just read the Bible. Because I tell you, people can get their heart so hard that they can never get it open again. Stand together. All cheered up. <laughs> Take that down. Take that down. <laughs> I love my Bible. Now let me take you back to the beginning of it to finish. Tonight, I want you to convert the hard thing you're going through into eyes that say, instead of saying, what's the devil doing to me? What's my father doing to me? Let's get a big God in our life. Two people that I've known that have done this for me the most, Jack Taylor and Ann Blunt. Let me tell you what will make you an indestructible person. If you have two attitudes, one, nothing can happen to me that doesn't come through my father's hand. Two, he loves me completely. If those two things are embedded in you, you will live your entire life with the spirit of sonship anchoring you so that there is no trial that can destroy you. And so you say, God, have your perfect work in this. I'm here, I'm yours. Have your perfect work. If you could use the misery of Joseph for the salvation of his family, then my problems are nothing. You can tell I'm feeling better. I don't say that with cockiness. I do say it with resolve. Can't tell you how many times I would see Gail's mother. Wow, what an incredible human being she was. Never complained. I don't understand this, Helen, but God loves me and I'm His. You know what there is? There's a, there's a matriarchal generation. And I don't know if she's the fountain of it or not, but she, 
certainly is the fountain of it that we know. And there's a, there's just generation now after generation of godly women who are indestructible because mama planted the faith in them. You see, faith, faith that says I'm his, he's mine. Cancer can't cancel it. Politics can't defeat it. Nothing can destroy it. So I'm gonna bless you. If Jesus Christ was crucified by the wicked hands of men in the perfect plan of God, then you in your suffering, you're in the hands of God tonight. And I'm gonna ask you to do something tonight. I'm gonna ask you instead of making your prayer, take it away, make your prayer, not my will, but yours be done. Make me an instrument of your peace and walk into the God forsaken moment as Jesus went before you and came out and said, I was never alone, he was with me. This is our faith. This is our faith. Oh, how we love you, Lord, how we love you. How we love you. We saw a wonderful touch of healing power and he's here to heal you. You say, what about what you're preaching? It doesn't cancel a thing. God still wants to touch you with healing in your body, with restoration in your soul. He wants to touch you. Because I know that as I'm preaching it, you're, you're where I've been some, sometimes lately. You're saying, I wish I could feel that preacher. And that's why we're here to help one another. We're here to help one another. And so even as those men put, open that roof and put that man down at the feet of Jesus. We exist in this place to be those who open the roof for you and make a place for you. Because listen, when, this is the beauty of the body of Christ. When you can't get it right for yourself, there's, there's so many people that can. I wish I could tell you all the people who've prayed for me in the last few weeks, the last few months. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for listening. For any more information, please visit our website, newlifecity.org. God bless, and we'll see you later.